Hello and welcome to Gotta Get Out of This Town, a 2000 pop punk and emo pop retrospective. And we've done this intro about 50 times because something keeps crapping out when we're doing this episode. I think this record is cursed. I am Elaine, by the way. I'm Fletcher. And I'm Adam. And this record is definitely cursed. <laughs> and we're here to talk about the 2000 Bad Religion record, The New America. Or is it just New America? The New America. I was going to ask if any of you had any prior experience with this record, because I, as a giant shame on the whole face of punk podcasters everywhere, have literally, like, I knew of Bad Religion, but I never actually, like, listened anything from them, so I am completely ignorant to the history of this band, and if I had to judge from this record, I would say that they're not really good, which I don't think it's accurate to the reality of the things. I would definitely ask you, as a fan of the band, please do not judge them on the new America. <laughs> that is fair. That is fair. I didn't know that they were any sort of punk band. Like, I'd heard of them, but I assumed they might be, like, some sort of metal thing. I have heard exactly one of their songs before, and it's A Thousand Memories. Not sure where I heard it, but it sounds familiar. Yeah, as the one of us who has actual experience with this, I did the notes and history this weekend. And it's probably for the best because we've got 20 years to cover, which I will try to get through very quickly. Bad Religion has a backlog of career like no one else we've run into yet. Yeah, I'll be honest, on the first run when I was planning this podcast out, I specifically marked, you know, pop punk bands from before the 2000 that kept doing records in the 2000 and like I marked them with a specific color. Because my first instinct was like, we're not going to do these because I don't want to research their history. <laughs> because I'm, I, I was not going to research 20 years of bad religion. But fortunately, I, I have co-hosts, which will take researching duties from me when I need, need it. It's true. So, you know, the power of collaboration. Learning to work together like every you know superhero movie. Yay! Don't worry, this is going to be a fun story, and I expect to hear a few what-the-fucks as I go through it. <laughs> Excellent, I'll prepare my fucks. Just to kick off, Bad Religion started out in Los Angeles, California in 1980 and would build up more of a presence over the next few years as the band all exited high school. The founding members were a quartet, Greg Graffin, Jay Bentley, Jay-Z Scrout, and Brett Gurowitz, and yet this lineup isn't even going to last until their first album, 
where drummer Jay-Z Scrout will drop and the album will be finished with Peter Finestone. Ooh, they have Jay-Z in their band. Well, they had Jay-Z. He was the 99th problem, of which there are many. Oh dear. For what it's worth, their sound and above-average lyrics gave them a solid start, and before a year had passed, they would be making appearances at shows alongside another SoCal highlight of the era, Social Distortion. Do not worry, either of my co-hosts. By the 2000s, Social Distortion is so far removed from popular that they will never appear on this show, so you don't need to remember the name. Oh, good. Neat! I already have erased it from my brain. It's also worth noting this is a crew who had non-standard influences for the genre. Gurowitz and Graffin would name their record label Epitaph, where the band's albums start coming out in 1982, after the King Crimson song of the same name. And I'm also going to steal a quote from Zach De La Roca of Rage Against the Machine here, talking about hearing their first album. When the needle hit the record, I have to say it was a defining moment for me. The music was darker than most punk records I had heard. It was almost gothic, and there was a genuine sadness to the melodies. It's really hard to stress how much these dudes shaped the 80s and 90s punk sound in California. Look, In the Court of the Crimson King is one of my few 5 out of 5 records, so like, I get it. It's a good song. Epitaph. It's good. Seems legit. It's fantastic, and if I were to name a record company, I would probably steal the same thing if it hadn't already been taken. So, they kick off... I was about to make a joke about how, instead, if I was going to make a nap, I would name it after a Kesha song. Oh, dear. <laughs> Damn it. That's a good one. Uh, I cannot think of that song without thinking of a joke on the league, which is, one of the cast is so proud to have gone to see them in concert, and, like, Kesha played TikTok twice for an encore. <laughs> Just always laugh at that joke. To be fair, honestly, if it was not for like the horrendous history that she had with the producer in those records, I will stand behind those two records. I think they're really fine pop records, the first, yeah. first two records. But, you know, then all of that shit came out and he's just like, I cannot listen to this anymore. No, no, understood. So, their first record, I assume, How Could Hell Be Any Worse, launches the band in 1982. And while it's rough, not helped by the departure of this cut in the middle of production, it's pretty much well remembered. It's well regarded and shows you this is a group to watch because this is what they're doing with their own instruments and pity time in the studio. If you only listen to one track, make it We're All Gonna Die, which is something they still play these days in their touring rotation, as well as, and I'm sure you will love this, This is a song Sublime covered on their Glory album, 40 Ounces to Freedom. Oh, dear. So if you want to hear it bad, you can uh, mix up all of our class influences. No, thank you. You know, I'm seeing like the Mass Effect prompt appearing before my eyes. I'm going to choose the no option here. Just going to slide my analog stick down and just be like, no, thanks. Elaine's cursor hovers over the red option. Punch Fletcher for bringing up Sublime again. (laughs) That's a long way to punch. This is also where they found, and briefly dissolve after this next period, Epitaph Records, which kickstarted a lot of bands of the SoCal scene. L7, Pennywise, NoFX, The Offspring. Yay! Then they run into a rough period, because their second album, Into the Unknown, is not a punk album at all. 
It is a prog rock album that was such a misstep, it's never been released on CD, they've barely ever played it live, and the only way you can hear it legally since the original vinyl printing was in an oh-fuck-it-fine anniversary collection in vinyl last year with everything the band released. It's not on Spotify, that's for sure. I had to search it on YouTube because I was curious about this. Yeah, legitimately the only release it's had since the vinyl days was as part of that 30th anniversary box set. Yeah. It's not the worst prog album I've heard, but it's not amazing, and I can see why nobody brings this out to play anymore. Can you request it, a live show? Apparently they have started playing a couple of tracks off it in the past decade, but that's it. Okay. Yeah, I think it might just be a case of somebody wants to screw around with it or change things up in a set list every once in a while, but doesn't. it's never gotten a full performance, and there's still large gaps of this that you cannot hear legally. That is fair. So, over the next couple of years, the band goes in and out of existence a few times, dissolving and reforming and dissolving again, putting out only a single EP, which is a very weird one because... One side of it is five tracks, and the other side is completely smooth. Back to the known. Okay, that, that, why? They only had five tracks, and they still needed to put it out on vinyl. Could, they could have done two and two, two and three. Not on a 12-inch. I don't know how vinyl works. Look, I think we all know if anyone is the weird vinyl-collecting audiophile dipshit on this podcast. It's me. It's me. <laughs> Clearly. I'm very good at figuring out how vinyl things work. Adam, can you even draw us what a vinyl looks like? Yes. Please do. Curious. <laughs> it's a circle. <laughs> like, it's going to look a lot like a CD. <laughs> it's a CD in black, but not a PlayStation disc. period, Gurwitz had left the band for addiction issues, and it was replaced by the Circle Jerks' Greg Hetson on guitars. 1987 arrives, Graffin starts trying to get the crew back together, and the now sober Gurwitz is sick of his day job working in a record studio, and teams up with everyone else. Epitaph returns from the grave, and Suffer is their new record. It refines their earlier style into more of an angry explosion, very punk. 15 tracks under 26 minutes, a few of which, uh, Do What You Want and What Can You Do, are still big mainstays of the touring list to this day. This recording session has a bunch of big names from the region, with the aforementioned Hetson doing guitars on some tracks, Gerwitz picked up the slack on others, 75% of L7's lineup are playing on various parts of the album. This is a streak that begins a records you should listen to. Okay, what are these records, Fletch? The next pair would be coming one and two years after Suffer. They're very prolific in this period. No Control in 1989, written while they were touring for Suffer. And 
Gurowitz is actually screwing around with new hardware at this point while they recorded it. He runs everything through a new compressor, decides he hates how it's created, and then painstakingly has to undo the effect on the recordings, leading to a sort of raw sound he liked in the end that would become a recurring trick. This is the first time out of five releases the band's lineup hasn't changed entirely from one album to the next, and it shows because everyone is beginning to gel. Would again recommend listening to No Control. Turns out that if you, you know, if you don't change your, the members of your band every couple of months, you start making better music. It helps. I never would have guessed. One year after this, another album arrives, Against the Grain, and while it's not mainstream yet, this is the first time the band breaks 100k copies sold, and they're beginning to lean into the sort of techno-futurist lyrics that will come to define some of their later works. This album actually has the original debut of their famous single, 20th Century Digital Boy. After this album, Pete Finestone leaves the band, and Bobby Shear will take over drums on that tour and going forward. From the record that we heard today, I would say that these people are very much anti-technology. I would say they have a whole thing about how technology is amplifying our loneliness and isolation. That's kind of the whole point of 20th Century Digital Boy. Okay, that makes sense. But uh, we'll get there. I definitely have some commentary on the tracks here. So, yeah, so this stuff happens, and the band is already, like, a decade in being a band and making music. And now a weird period for the group starts. They record Generator in 1991, but the record isn't released for about another year, due to, you know, just fussing over the record and fighting amongst each other on details. And as a result from this, some B-side from the era feature on a split EP with Noam Chomsky of all people, which... And it is that Noam Chomsky. Yep, he's just the other side of the record. (laughs) Why not? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, they gotta put something there. They can't have it be smooth again. (laughs) Yeah, it's not like there's a history of that. Nope. What if they had Smooth by Santana instead as a B-side? If they pulled that off in 1991, I think we'd all be impressed. (laughs) That is fair. Quite possibly. Noam Chomsky featuring Santana. (laughs) (laughs) Oh dear. And so I think what actually is going... Anyhow... The songs will later be put back into the re-releases of Generators, our bonus tracks, and they will be kept in print. Basically, they're sort of moving back to the progish urges from early on, as they are playing with lyrics and with sounds in a varied way, more slow tracks and more stuff that... Fletch will be able to talk to you about, given that he listened to the record. They definitely fit with some of the material in this era into the old definition of emo, emotional hardcore. It's slow, it's got a passion to it, but it's not... You wouldn't call it whining, you'd call it growling your feelings, basically. Their first music video does come off of this album, recorded for Atomic Garden. It's not much to talk about because it's a bunch of young men with a self-done studio putting out a video with a rented camera. Expect a lot of desert because it takes place in SoCal. 
as everything in our podcast ever will and ever has. Two-thirds of our cast here are SoCal adjacent, so I think you're just the odd woman out there, Ellie. No, Italy is the SoCal of Europe. <laughs> that tracks, given the vacation spots. Hmm. Yeah. Given the temperature. Yeah, okay, I can see that. Also, we have giant gold gaudy uh, hills and manors, too. Neat. Thanks, Pope. <laughs> is there a Californian poop? Is it just like Tom DeLonge? The Californian Pope is definitely Jerry Brown. That's why he has been recorded for posterity in the classic California Uber Alice. Anyhow, 1993 arrives. I was born in that year. Yay! <sighs> <laughs> I was old enough to be listening to Bad Religion at this point. During this year, aside from me being born, Recipe for Hate starts existing in the world, which is the new record by Bad Religion, and the first time they chart in the US. And they leave Epitaph Record for a deal with Atlantic, which, you know, no effects will later tell you was a bad idea, but, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Atlantic quickly re-releases the album under their own banner after the initial run sells through. And, yeah, what can you tell us about this record, Fletch? So this is where a lot of the things that people associate with the band kick in. Their logo takes center stage here in the font it rolls with for years and on merch. If you've seen the Bad Religion logo, it's this one. The cover art is a collage created from famous photograph of white supremacists calling after they get off on murder, and Nazi camp guard dog heads pasted above. Again, not a joke. These are the actual sources of the art. And they continue trying out new sounds, getting into a country groove, as well as borrowing the vocals of Jeanette Napolitano from Concrete Blonde and Eddie Vedder of Pearl Jam. Making it onto the charts means more exposure, and this time the videos recorded for the album make it onto MTV, leading into their greatest album commercially that we're going to cover today, Stranger Than Fiction. This is their only album that would go gold in the U.S. It hits the 80s on the Billboard charts. It's got major singles like the re-recorded version of 20th Century Digital Boy, Infected, the title track. And it did all of this despite Brett Gurwitz leaving the band again before they toured. For what it's worth, he had every right to. 
The Offspring had just broken big, and since he was the engineer on their album, he had his hands full. Plus, by this point, Graffin was starting to be a real bastard on tour, swapping lyrics mid-song to needle Brett about his addiction, a thing that Brett has discussed openly in some interviews and talking about with fans. Yeah, that's a dick move. The actual quotes are worse. There's a reason they're not here. Hmm. Ooh, okay. Graffin and Gurowitz are a very weird duo where you can tell... They're very much like Tears for Fears, minus the overt hatred. You can tell there's something between these guys. They grew up together. They keep coming back and working with one another. They seem to be better as a pair than they are solo, but boy, there's definitely some Hedgehog's Dilemma in there. I am a person who listens to a lot of music, but I don't necessarily, like, follow the behind-the-scenes shit because I had no idea Tears for Fear hated each other. Makes me sad. I love a lot of their stuff. Yeah, they're very good, but when they reformed again in the 2000s, I think late 2000s, they were very open interviews that, yeah, they hadn't worked together for years because of the fact that they grew to hate each other and they were only doing it for the money, but if everyone wanted to see him play, why leave that on the table? That is fair. And for what it's worth, they seem to have at least cooled since the 80s because they have been pretty consistently on the road uh, doing that nostalgia circuit ever since. Huh. Yeah. I don't know if there's a new album. I think there's at least one. Persia Boys released a new album this year. Hmm. It's okay. It's a Pet Shop Boys record. You know, I continue to enjoy every modern Pet Shop Boys album. It's definitely better than some other bands I can think of. Looking at you, New Order. I mean, they're not bad. I thoroughly enjoyed the record, but it's also like, you know, it's okay. It's not great. It's not bad. It's okay. You know, listen to it. if the best thing you're doing after 30 years is it's okay, you're still beating the cure. <laughs> I have no idea what we're talking about anymore. Well, in order, we talked about Tears for Fear, Pet Shop Boys, New Order, and now The Cure. I've heard of two of those bands. Yeah, we're just doing like a, our usual like randomly talk about just a bunch of new wave bands from like the, the 70s and 80s. It's all right. Okay. It's because of the fact that we're about to loop back into the bland era of bad religion. Ah, uh, had to spice things up a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, I, I would note that Fletch marked this chapter of the uh, of the notes, Everything Goes to Shit, 1995-2000. It's not wrong. The Atlantic Records era... After Stranger Than Fiction, which, again, probably their peak at a certain point by some metrics, everything is just fading returns. A couple songs off these albums become singles, but the titles basically scream malaise. The Grey Race, No Substance, there was a live album in there. How do you really feel about it, Bad Religion, huh? I can just imagine the field day that critics had at the time when a record that apparently wasn't that good was named No Substance. 
Just like, you know, just just write the review for them. Why won't you? Shit sandwich. They can't write that, can they? <laughs> <laughs> Still probably one of the all-time best jokes about the music industry. So, yeah. They spend three months touring with Blink-182 in the lead-up to today's album, The New America. This is also a very contractual obligation album, but it at least has some interesting drama. By this point, Gurowitz and Grafen have begun to patch things up, and one track on the album credits Gurowitz as Mr. Brett as writer-guitarist. Greg got to live out another teenage art rock dream by working with producer Todd Rundgren, and they got along like two wet cats in a sack. The miserable process of recording this album was a grudge fuck by all accounts. Various members of the band claim Greg was despondent at meeting one of his heroes and finding out that they couldn't stand each other. For what it's worth, Greg Graffin will claim in his autobiography that while this recording was troubled, he and Rundgren are good friends to this day, even if they do not work together again. As one final bit of insult to injury on the New America, the cover sucks and the international one is better. The U.S. cover is a bunch of clip art helicopters over a city block, and the international cover is three Art Deco children drawn reciting the Pledge of Allegiance with one's other hand dangling a gun loosely. I can see why it was banned. Was this after Columbine? Oh yeah. The singles on this record are... <laughs> you think this had singles, that's rich. No singles, Dan? I I'm saying there were none. There were no videos, there was no airplay for this in most markets. Nobody pushed this album. After the release, nobody was proud of the new America. This is the only album that Graffin did the writing for solo, probably for a reason. It sells 61,000 copies, and it nearly ended the band. Some of this next part I'm taking from a series of interviews with Jay Bentley, who had some real fun... He was the one who was most open about what a disaster this was in the lead-up to their next one and the return to Epitaph. Uh, he says, Everything was a mess. They were just above the label's get-dumped-automatically numbers, uh, apparently a flat 50,000. And more than ever before, Bad Religion had become more than a day job, but a grueling chore. He said, uh, The album came out and it was just okay. I was like, So this is it? The mighty Bad Religion goes out with this tiny whimper? It wasn't as bad as Into the Unknown, but it was a fillet of fish. Well, it's got some wood particles in it. It only has to be 60% fish. The rest is filler. <laughs> oh, dear. The aftermath of this album, though, is pretty uphill for the band. The Atlantic Records deal is over, and as a result, they return to Epitaph in their own creative control. Gurowitz rejoins as a member. And in 2001, a shoulder injury ends Bobby Sher's career, and it's tragic but they trade the fuck up when they get Brooks Wackman of Suicidal Tendencies as a replacement during the lead-up to their next album, which we're actually going to cover in the near future. So, rather than go into that and eat into future cast, I will just say that 9-11 is a tragedy, but at least one good album came out of it. Right, American Idiot, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, with that, let's start talking about... Yeah, let's talk about this record!
and we kick off with You've Got a Chance, which I actually enjoy this. I think it's one of the stronger tracks on the album. I wholeheartedly agree. I liked this one. Yeah, I like the voice of the singer. I think we 90% of what we're listening will be very nasally voices. And this guy has an actual, like, voice for, you know, singing. Yeah, again, 20 years of refining his sound at this point. Graffin knows how to use it as an instrument. Yeah, it's cool. Oh, good. For once, we have that. Never again. Imagine going to the Bad Religion Blink-182 tour, and you first listen to them, and then, like, Tom DeLonge comes on the stage, and yeah. he sings like this. I do have to imagine that is a hell of a contrast. <laughs> I wasn't going to bring up Tom DeLonge this time. We will never not have to bring up Tom DeLonge. Tom DeLonge and Phoenix DX are two nemesis. Nemesi? One of them is the Satan of this podcast, though, whereas the other is like our Loki. Tom DeLonge is the Q <laughs> of this podcast. <laughs> Hello, Picard. <laughs> God. That, that seems like a fair assessment. Well, now I have that image in my mind. He shows up to the Bad Religion concert. Greg Graffin punches him once. You hit me. None of the members of Green Day ever hit me. <laughs> oh, dear. This is the dumbest skit I've done on this show, and that says a lot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's it's quality comedy. I will say this here just so I remember. I need to do a Photoshop for that. <laughs> I love it. But yeah, completely solid opening track. It's toothless. This is one of the most hopeful bad religion songs I can think of, but it's again one of the strongest outings on the album. Yeah, this whole record is like, you know, you were mentioning how all oh, their songs were almost like gotch, they're like very sad. This record is not sad. It's not energetic, it's not sad, it's like mid-tempo, like almost 70s rock. And it's, uh, I don't know. This song is one of the better ones. It, it's like, as a, as a catchy chorus, it's a bit more structured than a lot of things that appear on this record. It's appreciable. This song, and I think at least one of the other songs, I think would make good walking music. Just because, like, you've got a good beat, you've got some good guitar, the lyrics are alright, but, you know, it's kind of fast, the vocals sound nice. Not a bad choice. The rest of the album, not so much. There's another quote about this album, how unlike most of their work, this is personal and not political. Mm. And I think that sums up a little of why this has kind of an optimism. I assume that the whoa are like a general bad religion thing and not like a thing of this album, because as far as I can tell, every song goes whoa in some manner or shape. Hey, did I mention that we don't let Graffin do songwriting on a lot of the other albums without help? <laughs> I mean, you can't do everything on your own. That This kind of was him trying to do most of it on his own, and it shows. Yeah, not the best move. It's okay to ask for help, everyone. It's a long way to the promised land, so you better well know your way. There's a ship on the ocean and an albatross Who is trying to lead you astray Leaders, politicians, and 
good news though, just like we're at the start of this album and there's a long way to the end, it's a long way to the promised land. And I say promised land, not promised. That's actually how this is set up. For this, the only Spotify ad that played and during my listen through this played, which told me that if I pay premium, I can use Google Home to throw a party or something. Uh, I don't have any opinion on this. I'm just sad that I didn't get any more Spotify ads during this record because I could have used the break. <laughs> Ouch. I actually stopped halfway in and went to go listen to tracks off of Stranger Than Fiction. <laughs> I stopped halfway through It's a Long Way to the Promised Land to listen to It's a Long Way to the Top if you want to rock and roll by ACDC. It's a good track. I, my notes verbatim say, this one isn't my jam. I do not vibe with it. <laughs> I actually think that this is a filler song that has one of the most hilarious lyrics on the album. Leaders, politicians, and power whores are in line to receive your choice. Power whores is such a phrase. <laughs> That's going to be the name of my punk band, okay? <laughs> Sex worker rights, yo. Yeah. Anyhow, this is a weak song about how you can't join the system to fix the system, but Power Whores stands out. Yeah, I mean, there is interesting, like, the um, there's some interesting melodic tension between the main vocals and the woho, which they're not completely, like, harmonizing, and it's, like, an interesting choice, but yeah, this doesn't have much going for it. jokes write themselves once again when we move on to track three a world without melody i liked the guitar i actually don't remember any of the lyrics should i look this up all i remember is that they're like melody is the key and my thought was melody is the key i thought memory was the key we should probably get a key ring the one thing I enjoy about this is the opening drums sound like they're being played in reverse. It has kind of an interesting effect. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the opening drums are interesting. Honestly, I was a bit worried because I was like, are the drums going to do that through the whole songs? But they don't. They just have like a cool intro. The songs remind me of something. It has a very like grungy vibe to the melody. And, but I don't, cannot quite put my finger on what this thing is reminding me of. So hmm. I can't either, even though it also reminds me of something. I feel like if you played this 25% faster, you could probably have something here, but the time, it just sort of drags a little. I do love that drum thing, and I'm probably going to try a trick like that next time I'm playing around with music, though. Hmm. Yeah, cool. Yeah, I don't know, it's just that, that main melody, which is like, da 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 I don't know, it reminds me very heavily of something. That's, that's Nirvana. Is it? Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah, it, it does have, like, a grungy feeling. I don't know what songs from Nirvana this is reminding me. 
I mean, I don't know specifically which song it is either, but I could probably find it given a week. Anyhow, if you figure out what this thing is reminding us, tweet at us with the hashtag we figured out what song this is reminding Elaine and Adam, and we are tweeting it to us. That's the whole hashtag. Remember it. <laughs> what a nice Good hashtag. So, how about we talk about the, the, well, the self-titled song from this album, New America? How about not? Uh, I didn't, I don't like this song. It's Mm. one of only two songs on this album I remember hearing on the radio. Hmm. It's still bad 20 years later. (laughs) Yeah. I'm gonna say the most damning thing that I can say about this song. This sounds like something out of American Idiot. Melodically, lyrically, like the fucking chanting at the end, the like rhythmic guitar. Yeah, it. the chorus is just a chant of the title and whoa over and over. Yeah, this one just made me kind of sad because, like, the only lyric that I could pick out that I was just kind of like, oh, come on, is we are just marching toward extinction with blinders on our eyes. It's like, okay, buddy, you might be right about that, but you don't need to say it. You have the marching, like, guitars in the background because, you know, subtlety. I I hate this song. I hate this song so much. The only thing that I save about this song is the completely stock pop-punk intro, which is just like you listen to it. Like, if you listen to the five seconds on it, it could be any pop-punk band from the 2000s ever. And it's completely like road stock pop-punk intro. And after that, I just hate everything that comes after that. Also, if anything on this album, barring the bonus tracks, drags, this is it. I checked my watch twice in a three-minute, 26-second song. Well, they have one melody. We are the new America, whoa-oh, whoa-oh. And it goes on for three minutes. Just that, basically. Yeah. good music. Neither do I. Let's talk about A Thousand Memories. (laughs) This is the one that you've heard somewhere, Adam. I swear I've heard this one before. But I can't place where. Was it on the radio a lot when it came out? This was not something I heard on the radio. Maybe you remember Sora fighting the Thousand Memories at Hollow Bastion? Yeah, then I have no idea where I could have heard it. (laughs) 
Anyhow, this song, this is when they start, like, the impression to me that this is, like, very undisciplined, which would make sense if one person wrote all of this, starts picking up, because this song, like, doesn't have a structure that my human brain can comprehend. It just sounds like someone making a melody as, as it goes along. And, uh, like, I appreciate that it tries to be more articulate melody-wise, but it doesn't really work. Just sounds meandering. Like, this would be a bunch of songs from now on will sort of feel like they sort of go nowhere. There's no real hook to get you. And you have, like, this very flat production to the point that you're expecting, like, a very structured, you know pop song structure to hook you in at least, but these songs don't have that. They sort of like meander around with a couple of melodic ideas and sort of like, it's just like a mush of music, just like a oatmeal, but music. And not even like good oatmeal, like the oatmeal that you do, but you're sort of distracted and you burn a bit, a bit of it is uncooked and it's just like, it's garbage oatmeal. This is like fucking up making an oatmeal maybe you're putting too much water in it and it's just shit you're kinder than me i was gonna say oh the oatmeal like the comic then what's the comic the oatmeal oh the oh right that, yeah that one that the guy. one that's obsessed with like tesla yeah the weird seo reddit guy Ew. fuck him yeah you this song to me feels very much like some of the meatloaf tracks that go all over the place or Wings' band on the run, where it's clearly just a bunch of scrapped ideas shoved into one song with all the tempo changes. Uh, aren't you appreciating the prog, like, nature of this track? I would be if there was any transition or structure to it. This really feels like three demos on one tape. Yeah. I mean, it goes real slow for a minute halfway in and then closes out with some high school punk jams. Yeah, this song is not, like, this song is just, like, throwing oatmeal at the wall. I will stand by my oatmeal metaphor. The most damning part of A Thousand Memories is the fact that if there wasn't a skip gap while it loaded the next track, I would be 1000% convinced A Street Kid Named Desire was the same song changing gears again. It sounds exactly the same at first. like a street kid named Desire, though. Me too. Real? Okay, hit me. I don't know, it's just like an okay punk song. Short, still a bit meandering, it still goes south of nowhere, but has good guitars. Like the guitars on it. I think it has like a couple of melodic idea works. It's not great, but it's probably one of my favorite track in a record that I don't like much. I don't think it's amazing, it's just like, I'll listen to this, it's okay. Yeah, for me this is a song where I was like, oh, you know, this kind of captures that, like, uh, small-town punk mood without being, like, super whiny or super, I gotta get out of here, oh man. <laughs> I enjoyed it. It's, it's an okay song. Fletch, feel free to destroy it now. 
I didn't have anything cruel. I never wrote a second note because nothing ever changed enough to focus on. It's just very static to me. I just like the uh, punk 15 in the morning. That's... So, <laughs> if we really want to hear me destroy something, Whisper in Time is next. My only note on Whispering Time is, when is the Spotify ad? <laughs> I really didn't like this one. Okay, you go first, Adam, because I'm going to hit you with something afterwards. I, like, I can't even, I was just, I, I didn't finish the track. Just slide away your computer towards Bad Religion being <laughs> like, no tanks. Yep. This one is definitely the song about Graffin's divorce. Okay. Yeah. Oh no. This is a VH1 standard on a punk album. And this is absolutely him bemoaning, giving, uh, you know, his passed away, losing things. Everything was a whisper in time, a lost moment, a fading memory. This is 100% the song that was written about his divorce. That's unfortunate. If you're going to write a divorce song, you have to make it good. I saw it mentioned in a few of the interviews where they're talking about, yeah, everyone was in a bad place and Graffin was all at the controls and he even wrote about his divorce. And I was thinking, nobody mentions which one it is. Oh, this is the one. This is definitely the one. Yes. Yeah. It's like sort of like down tempo. That's like this almost full key vibe to it. Again, this guy likes 70s music a lot, I think. I can see that not particularly good. I believe it. Speaking of believing it... It's the Naruto theme song. Believe it. Go, go, go. I was go, going to go, say go, that. Go, Wait, no, wrong song. Never mind. I've actually never watched anime Naruto. Naruto! Naruto! Believe it! Believe God, it! God, that one fell completely flat for me because I only read part of it as manga, and there's no theme song on that. I only ever watched one episode of Naruto, but Adam subjected me to the to the German opening song of the of the anime, which is something that I put in the episode notes. Nice. You should go and watch the German opening of Naruto because it's definitely something, all right? Yeah. Interesting. Weirdly, uh, I think for all of us, this was shoved to the very end of the album on all the platforms we listened on. Yep. Yep. I actually had to check the track listing, and everything confirmed that this is where it was on the album on any physical release. No idea why that happened. I mean, because it's kind of unremarkable, maybe, so they just kind of shuffled it off. If that's the case, why is I love my computer around? Before we get to that, Beli oh yeah, I'm not I'm not changing gears yet. I'm just saying we can't blame unremarkable on anything. Believe it is alright. I don't hate it. It's a poppy tune. It's very upbeat, which is not something that I was expecting reading the history of this band. It's just like 
Yay! Believe it, it could generally be the theme song to Naruto. So, you know what's different about this track compared to everything else, right? What's, what's different? This is the one that Gurowitz assisted with writing on and did guitar on. He is credited as Mr. Brett and nothing else, but yeah, Gurowitz assisted on Believe It. Are we sure it wasn't Bret Hart that helped them? Like he helped all the game developer who made the WWF games? He just ran in with a chair, smacked Graffin upside the head, and grabbed the mic. Oh, you, do, you don't know that ad where Bret Hart is just like helping out the developer of the game? I did not, so please tell me about this. It's just like a stupid ad from like, a, I don't know, like a 90s WWF game. And you have Bret Hart just going to the studio being like, oh, you missed the you missed the flag pointer there. You should fix that. It's just like funny. Cool. It's like quaint and funny. I'll put it in the episode notes. Nice. Yeah, the song was just kind of meh. Okay. I thought that whatever they did with the vocals during the bridge was kind of neat. But other than that, it's just kind of like meh. Okay. The echo effect in the center is one of only two times this sort of thing is used on the album, and this is the only one where it works. Yeah, this this is a, this is an okay song. It's like a beat. It has like a catchy tune to it. It's a nice highlight. I would definitely throw this in my top three, and part of that is just that it has an entirely different energy. This is a, if I didn't know you were 20 years in at this point, I'd find this acceptable track. It's garage punk as hell in a lot of ways. This track is not helped by being shoved at the end of the record, because you're coming in from 40 minutes of mediocrity, and this sort of just like doesn't click at there, but I could see it actually coming after Whisper in Time, working more in the context of the whole record. Yeah, it's a good pickup. Uh, this is a step towards what their next album will sound more like. Okay. Oh, do they keep being super upbeat in the next album? Uh, the first single off of the process of belief is actually pretty upbeat, although you can read it a little sarcastic if you want. Okay. It's called Sorrow. I love my computer, you make me feel alright Every waking hour and every lonely night I love my computer, for all you give to me Predictable errors and no identity And it's never been quite so easy I've never been quite so Unfortunately, we're not there yet. We're at I Love My Computer. Yay! I love this song. Uh, oh, dear. This is the actual song that's like so bad it's interesting in the record. I feel there's a lot of mediocrity in this record. This song is just like, heh. This song is a train wreck. Old people hating technology. My notes on this are... Verbatim, hmm, not the sure what to fuck to say about that one. Um, but after Fletch, you said the thing about uh, isolation and loneliness in regards to technology, I was like, oh, that's what it's about. Okay, I guess I can see that. Okay, I'm, I'm gonna point out a couple of things. First of all, Bad Religion seems to be convinced that you click on the computer, as in, you don't click things inside the computer screen, you click on the computer itself which is hilarious to me. They rhyme, you made me feel alright with every night, which, good job there, master lyricist, bad religion there at work. Their main problem is that you watch porn on your computer, I guess, which, sure, 
Yeah, I'm not completely sure they know what a computer is, I'll be honest. The short version of my take on this song is it's bad 20th century digital boy. The longer take is I'm just going to read off some lyrics on this and try not to laugh because you better believe I saved <laughs> this one in a tab. Thank you. I'm also going to try and do a Greg Graffin voice, so God help us all. I love my computer, you make me feel alright Every waking hour and every lonely night uh, That's yeah. really how this song opens yeah. um, My lyrics do not have the digital woman voice that is just cooing sweet nothings at you during this track, which is a thing Um predictable errors and no identity and it's never been quite so easy these are the worst lyrics on the album not just because they scream very your dad is mad at the tablet but also just that this the scansion on this reads like shit i have to do his voice and cadence to make any of this rhyme look if i want to listen about an old person being angry at computers I'm gonna listen to our Jen Lucas and connect the dot of his cover of I Am The Slime by Frank Zappa where he made it about a computer and not about the TV. Those are not great songs, but they rank higher than this thing to me. If you want two better versions of an artist being mad at technology, there's Bjork talking about televisions, which is fantastic, and if you've never seen it, please find it. And there's David Lynch's rant about watching a movie on your fucking phone. Oh, no, that's just straight up, straight up good. Yeah, they, they both rule. I stand by, like, Grandpa Lynch being angry at people watching things on phones. No, I, I think those are both very much better versions of this. And I'm still not sure if this is supposed to be damn you technology or just like, we're raising a digital generation that's not going to know how to feel, man. It's, it really is just a weak sauce version of one of their biggest hits. I'm going to put in like a completely unrelated break here because I mentioned uh, Arjen Lucasen, which is like a metal producer who made a bunch of Iron Record where he just takes a bunch of metal singers and make them sing like very cheesy rock operas. I thought of him because he notably hates technology and has a lot of like really cheesy songs about how bad technology is. And then I realized a new record by Arion is coming this year and has the most dorky, cheesy trailer ever. And I want to show it to y'all and get your reaction in real time because we need a break from this record. So I'm going to post it here. You don't have to watch it all. Just watch like the first three to four minutes. Do we have to? <laughs> I'm watching it and this is amazing. I'll watch it, but I'm frowning. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is a joy. Thank you. Has a great cast. This Snyder from uh, Twisted Sister, isn't it? And Mike Mills from Toehider. Okay, I'm 30 seconds in, and this is already a better Castlevania anime than the Castlevania anime. <laughs> Tom Baker? Yep. Yo! He gets surprisingly big names, usually, in this project. This owns so... I have to pause this. We can't take a seven-minute break in the middle of the show, but I'm coming back to this. Okay. <laughs> oh my god, that rules. What were we talking about? We were talking about things that aren't good, right? Yeah, the hopeless housewife just came up.
Oh, right. Yeah. Take that, 50s. You suck. That's, that's the song. I can't even tell if that's it. My notes on this are... I mean, the tragedy of Housewives is a weird pick for a pop-punk song, but go off, I guess. <laughs> I have the lyrics in front of me. I still can't tell... What this is about? Yeah, because it kind of feels like this is saying we're, we're stronger together, unite, we die inside in isolation, but the metaphor around this is real weird, especially the one-line mention of uh, the Witches Bridge Club Weekly. It's like, I can't quite tell what this is going for. Me neither. It's using a housewife metaphor to say that something is bad, but I don't know what. Yeah, let me let me just give some actual lines for the people at home so they can play with this. Uh, get me out of your 90s, 1950s fantasy. Your face shines with misery transparently. Spew out that sobering half-assed victim rhetoric. Make them all squirm while they chew on it. Instead, you're mute and fawn, just waiting to die, like some kind of hopeless housewife. But you can change while you're alive. At least you tried to kill the demons inside. There's a comfort zone there in your head, and the world turns away as you tap the snooze button in bed. It really just seems to be like, don't be passive? This feels like a bizarre duet with the prior track, but I don't know the point it's gunning for. Yeah, especially because it's like... Don't be a 1950s housewife, but, like, not a lot of them had all that much choice in whether or not they were going to stay in those relationships, my pal. And God help me if I'm wrong, and this was the divorce song. <laughs> oh, I hope not. I hope not. I don't think so, but, you know, frankly, I can't throw it out. This sounds like offspring. Like, the lyrics sound like Offspring, and the music sounds like Offspring. If you gave me this song and you told me this is Offspring with a different singer, I would be like, yeah, that tracks. This could definitely be a Gone Away Tear Offspring song. Except it doesn't have the biting chorus. Anyway, I think we can all agree Hopeless Housewife is a muddled mess. I have a question for my co-hosts, which would be, which is worse? Something like this that might have a valid point, but fails to deliver it in every single way? Or something like a lit track where it's misogynist garbage, but does come across clearly with what they're going for? I choose the catchy one. Okay. I don't even know. It depends on which one I'm listening to. <laughs> yeah, this is better than the bad lit tracks, but... I'm not choosing this over my own worst enemy. That song rules. <laughs> Awfully, awful, awful themes, but that song rules. Um. <laughs> to actually answer the question, I prefer to be able to understand what the fuck the person's trying to say. Whether that's good or bad, because then I can appropriately judge what they're saying. But with this, it's just kind of like... Are you okay, pal? Uh, that's, that's my reaction to this song. Are you having a stroke? I feel like you're having a stroke. Blink twice if we need to call 911 on stage. Yeah, I, I'm with you. I very much think that these are 
some of the worst lyrics we've heard yet, just because there's no way to intuit what's going on here. Yeah. And it's not even like, again, like a lot of Jimmy It Word song that we listen to in Clarity, we don't know what they're about, but at least they have like really cool imagery, right? They're yeah. just like really neat writing. This doesn't have that. This is just like, this thing is bad like this other thing. What is that thing? I don't know. I have one positive about this. It has presented the idea of witches having a bridge club. And like, there's potential there. Now that we've been drained by that, there will be a way. That's it. This is just a bad protest song. Life always finds a way. This is the track that made me think that this is actually a good album to listen to when you're on a long car ride, and you just kind of want to make time unnoticeable, because it sounds just like a lot of the other tracks on the album, which is good if you don't want to know how many songs you've listened to because you're trying to make time go fast. Also, because you're not planning on actually listening to any of it. Yeah. Once again, I think there's a duology thing going on, because directly after this very weak, very we're going to figure it out together, we have Let It Burn, which you'd think would be no, screw it, throw a Molotov. But no, they're actually the, the same song. You, you just have to let the fire burn because we're going to get through this. They're the same song. Let It Burn is vaguely more punk. There will be a way it's straight up just like mid-tempo rock song, which feels, again, very 70s. They are different. They are not, you know, in-your-face punk, but I am not desperate enough in this podcast that just being different makes something good for me. No, if you're going to call a song Let It Burn, make it fast and hard. Don't make it, like just slightly faster than everything else, but still, like, fucking just, like, boring. Make it walking music, damn it. I have two additional things I wrote down, which I am only reading off because if I screwed this up, I want it on record so I can be hoisted by myself later. Thank God they don't do this exact whiny, vaguely lame protest song crap 20 more times in the Bush era like some bands... Watch me eat those words when we revisit Process of Belief. Because <laughs> I haven't revisited the whole album yet. Maybe I've just glossed it over, but I remember it being much better than this. And with that, we come to what is the final track on the original release, Don't Sell Me Short. It's a completely fine punk track. It's okay. I liked the vocals and guitar on this one a little more. They didn't know how to finish the song, so it just fades out way earlier than it seems like it should be. It's got about 30 seconds of fade out. They didn't want the song to be too short, because otherwise uh, they'd be selling it short. Ironically, the bit about human lives being talked about in investment in capital terms really has a different energy today. Kill people, so line goes up. Yeah, 
ironically, I think that's just an accidental thing, because again, this is a personal album, not a political one. Can we not ha- ever have personal album by these people? Because this is not... Yeah, good news. Fast Life, good B-side pump song. Yeah, it's okay. It's it's the fastest song on the record, if I remember correctly. I do like me a fast song with good guitar. This is, again, like, the the problem with this record is, like, the songs that aren't bad, there's not much to talk about. It's just like, this is okay. It's a punk song. It's fast. Yeah. Shall we talk about Queen of the 21st Century, though? Because I am extremely confused by the song. This is a boiled hot dog of a song. No flavor, no texture, and it's way bigger than it needs to be because it's taken on so much water. Can someone explain the lyrics of this song to me? I'm not sure if this person is trying to do a metaphor. Let me find the lyrics and see. The opening guitar on this sounds super familiar to me, but like the song itself is not familiar and also like, you know, very bland and not good, as Fletch said. Yeah, that's fair. It's sort of like the, you know, the building up guitar that you find in a lot of songs. But the problem with this is that I don't know if it's trying to do a metaphor. I don't know if they consider the main character this song is talking about good or bad. I am confused by what it's trying to say. This is like the the housewife song, but like 40 times that thing, where I don't know what the point is of this lyrics. And it really seems like is trying to put, make a point across, but I don't know what he's trying to say. So, looking at these lyrics, A, once again, I definitely think, especially with talking about a young girl, etc., what the parents thought she should be, there's a definite, hey, remember 21st Century Digital Boy? Uh, that again. And the other thing is that I'm not, entirely certain if this is supposed to be a scathing commentary on the state of the US like you would expect an album called The New America to be because things like uh, in a splintering community she could never meet their expectations then she came to symbolize the nation Uh, a ghost of what her parents thought a little girl should be but a fixed uh, analog heart, analog nerves, analog brain, but a fixture of the digital domain. Maybe this is. Yeah, I, I thought the same thing, but it, I don't know. It doesn't quite scan for me from that point of view. Yeah, I'm thinking if this were written 10 years out, this you could use a lot of these lyrics, but this song would have a whole different energy. This would be a Fox News commentator, steeped in spite, coddled in fear, drenched in novelty, uh, this a lean, mean fighting machine, the stuff for modern media lore, a modern-day romantic, a walking controversy. This would all fit so much ten years out, I don't know what this was going to be in 2000. Especially as slow and plodding as this track is a weird muddled way to close this out much like uh, a lot of this album Let your mind wander, look 
this was the album. Uh, at least next week we can all have a little bit of fun together because it's something that we've all been re-listening to over and over with Tony Hawk about to come out. Oh, right. Goldfinger next, next episode. Yep. I know the couple of songs that I know of them. By the way, what did y'all think about this record? It sucked! I thought it was okay. <laughs> like, it didn't suck because the bar for sucking has been actually set pretty high now. <laughs> um, it's not good. I think it sucked, but it's not a war crime. <laughs> it's not Phoenix DX, I guess we're all trying to say. Yeah, see... But then again, few things are Phoenix DX by Phoenix Like DX. I said, I would probably listen to this album on a nine-hour car ride just to, you know, pass a little bit of time. <laughs> you listen to this album in the same way you listen to, like, a harsh noise record. Just like you're not trying to focus on anything specifically, it's just thing that washes over you. I listen to a harsh noise record regularly. Me too. I like that, you know. It's like the Merv's bow of pop punk. That is a title I would love to click. I want to find the Merz bow of pop punk before the show ends. <laughs> we should start a reality show. Be the new Merz bow of pop punk. It cannot go any worse than the last reality shows that tried to make a band I can think of. Which one is the last one? There was the new Partridge family, which proceeded to create one whole special, had an album where none of the people they auditioned played their own instruments, and faded immediately. Or there was Rockstar NXS trying to replace the guy who choked himself to death for an orgasm, and they didn't last for more than a year. Huh. Remember this one show we liked with Jim Simmons where he made two bands out of kids, and I don't think they ever went anywhere. Oh, God, every time I'm reminded that Gene Simmons is still alive, it fills me with such a sadness. <laughs> Gene Simmons is the Henry Kissinger of music. <laughs> Prove me wrong. Were we talking about what we talked about this record? Yeah, I think we're done talking about this record. Same song, different chorus. So, this was the episode. If you want to hear more Gotta Get Out of This Town, a 2000 pop punk and emo pop retrospective, you should go to our unique URL website, getoutofthistown.com. If you want to get in contact with us and let us know all your thoughts about the thing that we talk about, you can mail us at getoutofthistownpodcast at gmail.com. It will take us about a month to reply to you because we're on a month delay, but we will get to you. Uh, to reply to you on air, I mean. You can also follow us, at us, and post all of our fantastic hashtags at ggottpodcast on the Twitter. And as always, you can go wherever your heart takes us, wherever you prefer to listen to your podcast to listen to us we're on itunes we're on spotify we're on google play we're everywhere you can't miss us so if you do that remember to rate and review us on itunes because that stuff actually help we also have 
This is completely random. We also have a Spotify playlist that I made, which is linked on our website. If you want to listen to all of the nuggets from our show, next week we will be talking about Stomping Ground by Goldfinger. They did a recent quarantine video. Like, if you want to see what all the members of Goldfinger look like now singing songs off this album, it's pretty wild. Probably aided by the fact that we have uh, Tony Hawk saying trans rights and also remasters. I just realized, I think our, I think if I do the math right, our Goldfinger episode is going to drop roughly when that game does. Perfect. Amazing! I think we're going to be within a week. Perfect, we're topical for once. Thank God. Uh, yeah, you can find me at Bustrider on Twitter, where I have links to anything else I do, including about six other podcasts. And since I was asked last week to do the full seven-minute spiel, you are going to get it as I talk about Journey Through the Decacast, a tokusatsu podcast focusing on Kamen Rider and everything associated with it. Uh, there is Going Digital, a Digimon Rewatch podcast, which I am not a host of, but I am the editor of. There is Boku no Stop, an anime podcast that goes in seasons, which is currently covering the 2000s adaptation of Cyborg 009, The Cyborg Soldier. It's very good, and I'm proud of it. Lightning Strikes Thrice, a JRPG Games Club podcast, which we are winding down a season on Shadow Hearts Covenant, and in the preparations to begin a three-game retrospective of Xenosaga, that title that you hated and didn't know that you hated until just now, as well as the fact that I am also on Fast Hogs and Chili Dogs here and there, a podcast about the Sonic the Hedgehog comics of the 90s through Archie Comics, and there is an upcoming thing that does not yet have a name, but may, by the time you're out here, check my Twitter. Adam, do you have anything to plug? Still no. And you can find me on Twitter at ACCTheMoon. And if you want to support us, we don't have a Patreon, but we recently got in the business of developing and selling Americas. So if you pass through your local America shop, feel free to buy our new America. <laughs> Good night. See ya. Good night. I've got the time to stick around I'll catch my flight like a pop pocket And get out of this town What's on your mind? There's no point left to keep your image down Let's terrify